Well, good morning once again. It's good to see everyone this morning. In case this is your first time or in case we haven't met, my name is Jason, and I have the pleasure of serving as interim pastor for the summer months. And last week, we began our summer series on the grand narrative of Scripture, going from Genesis all the way to Revelation over the summer months. And I commented how understanding the whole of Scripture is kind of like building a puzzle. And when you build a puzzle, you probably want to start with the four corner pieces and then build in the outline. And then from there, you have a reference point from which you can place all the details in the middle of the puzzle. And so what we're doing over these couple of months is building the outline of the story of scripture. And what we found in Genesis 1 to 4 last week, if we go to the first slide, is that the scripture is a narrative. And just like any narrative, there's a setting, which Genesis 1 tells us is the heaven and the earth. There's a main character, or the hero, and that would be God. And his desire was to have his image bearers rule the earth on his behalf. Uh, we saw that the kind of rule that the image bearers bring is one of blessing and provision and care to all of creation. The problem was the image bearers gave their rulership over to the serpent. Now that problem did not change the hero's desire. So God still wants his image bearers to rule the world. And we saw a very key verse in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a son, a seed of the woman, who would strike the serpent's head, bring humanity back to the garden, and restore rulership of the earth back to God's image bearers. And basically, that God will work this out all the way from Genesis 4 to Revelation chapter 19. And that's the vast majority of the Bible. And then finally, the resolution happens in the final three chapters, Revelation 20 to 22, where once again, God's image bearers rule the earth on his behalf. And we saw, if we go to the next slide, that Genesis 3.15 was really one of the corner pieces of our puzzle, that God will provide a promised seed who will strike the serpent. And so, at this point in the story, we have no idea how long it will take. We don't know it'll take thousands of years and many generations to get to Jesus Christ. And so the hope of every generation is that the son who is born in the line of promise, that he might be the promised seed. So we're always looking for the promised seed. Also in this verse, we see that there are two teams, if you will. There's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And all humanity is in one of these lines. And their relationship is characterized by hostility. Now that hostility we saw as a first example in Genesis 4, where Cain, who is of the line of the serpent, killed Abel, who is of the line of the woman, because he shared the woman's desire for the promised seed. And you know, sometimes Christians, we, we look at especially Old Testament narrative, and we're looking for theological principles or ethical application and that would probably be a mistake because that's not why Moses wrote the story. So, you know, Cain and Abel, we would say, you know, try not to kill your brother. Okay, you know, that's good. Don't do that. But that's not why Moses wrote that. It's an outworking of the hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so today we're going to cover, again at a high level, Genesis 5 all the way to Genesis 50, the whole book. And what Genesis does is trace the line of the promised seed all the way down. And 
to introduce this, we'll actually jump to a, a verse in the book of Matthew. There's a slide for this. Uh, you don't need to turn there. We'll just read here briefly. But at the beginning of Matthew, he provides for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he'll mention that Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now, Jacob had 12 sons and four wives. And so the question Genesis is trying to answer is, which of these will be the carrier of the promise? Why is it Judah? He was not the firstborn. In fact, he, he was fourth. <laughs> he was the fourthborn son of Jacob. So why Judah? And so jumping back to Genesis, in chapters 4 and 5, we see the multiplication of both sides. The, the seed of the woman will multiply through one line, and the seed of the serpent will multiply through another. There, there's an Enoch on this side and an Enoch on this side. One Enoch walks with God, but the other Enoch builds a city to make his name great. There are also two Lamechs. One Lamech on the line of the serpent seed, he is a murderer, and he starts multiplying wives. First example of polygamy in the Bible. The other Lamech has a son named Noah, which means rest. And so he is hoping that his son will bring rest to the sorrow. And we, we sang a song this morning about trading our sorrows. We? So it's that hope in the promised seed who will give us rest. And so we will come to Genesis 6, where there's a man named Noah. And in chapter 6, verse 9, it says of Noah this. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Now, Enoch also walked with God. Here, Noah walked with God, and in a few chapters, we will meet a man named Abram. He also walked with God. So there's this pattern of those who share the, the woman's desire walk with God. Now, at Noah's day, uh, at that time, the world was filled with wickedness, and God flooded the world, and only preserving Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And so after their time on the ark, they exited the ark. And in chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them. He, he's just created male and female. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's almost like Noah is this second Adam, getting a second chance for the human race. But notice what comes after it. It's different because in chapter 1, it says, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing on the earth. But in chapter 9, instead of having rule, and again, that's the rule that brings blessing to all creation, God says this in chapter 9, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. So there's some aspect of the image-bearing <coughs> capacity that has been lost. They cannot rule creation in a way that brings blessing the way God intended his image bearers to do so. And so of Noah's three sons, we're wondering which one will carry the promise. And we find out by the end of chapter 9 that it will be Shem. And from the line of Shem will come a man named Abram. Chapter, at the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to him. 
But uh, feel free to turn to chapter 12, and let's look at these verses with a little bit of uh, scrutiny here. So chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in he who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So these are some wonderful, wonderful promises of God to this man named Abram. And we don't know why God particularly chose Abram out of anybody else in this line. He simply did. And he promised him land. Now, at this point in the story, we don't know what that land is. He promised blessing. We don't know what that looks like yet. He promised a great name. And he also made this interesting retributive blessing and cursing. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. And that is exactly what we see in the rest of chapter 12 and in chapter 14. For example, in, in the second part of chapter 12, Abram and Sarai, his wife, will go down to Egypt. And Pharaoh will take Sarai as his wife. Now, if you take a man's wife, I'd say I'd call that a curse. And so God sends a plague upon Pharaoh's household. So those who curse you, I will curse. In chapter 14, there is this military invasion that comes in from Mesopotamia, and they will capture Lot, the nephew of Abram, and kidnap him and his family, taking them away. I also call that a curse. And God allowed Abram and his men to defeat that entire invading army. Again, those who curse you, I will curse. And so, verse 4 of chapter 12, Abraham walked with the Lord according to his word, and Lot went with him. So he's walking with God, and, and God led him to the land of Canaan. Verse 7 says this, The Lord appeared to Abram, and this is in Canaan, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So now we have more information. The land promised is the land of Canaan. And as we move through the story, these promises will grow. We will get more information, more clarity around exactly what these promises entail. If you jump ahead to chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord will again speak to Abram and, and say this, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, to the north, south, east, and west, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, so your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So he had Abraham look all over, walk up and down through the land, and all of that land would be his, and his descendants, which God promised would be a large population. Now at this point, Abraham has no son. He has no offspring. So in chapter 15, the promises of God that began in chapter 12, extended in chapter 13, will now be ratified by covenant. Notice verse 18 in chapter 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And it was ratified by blood. So Abraham, Abram at this point, he killed the sacrifices, cut them in half, and the Lord, in a flaming fire pot, went through the carcasses. 
And that's a covenant ceremony that basically says, if I do not uphold my promise in this covenant, let me be cut in half. You know, you can kill me. And of course, God cannot die. And so we know that these promises, that the covenant God made with Abram, is irrevocable. God will not go back on his word. And also, in the verse 18 of this chapter, we have more information about the promised land. In verse 18, it says, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Termites, and, and so on. And there's a slide we've got with a map on this. And just to give you a sense, the, the Euphrates River starts up in modern-day Turkey. And it flows down through Syria and Iraq, and it would empty into the Gulf. In fact, not very far from here in Kuwait. You just go into Iraq a little bit, and there is the Euphrates. Now, the river of Egypt, there is a, a debate about whether we're talking about the Nile River or Wadi El Arish, which is kind of at the edge of the Sinai Peninsula. But at a minimum, the promised land would be from the Sinai to the Euphrates. At a maximum, it would be from the Nile to the Euphrates, depending on the identity of the river of Egypt. And so in chapter 16, moving on now, Abram and Sarai are still childless. So they take things into their own hands. Sarai gives her servant Hagar as a wife to Abram, and she has a child. But the problem is, Hagar is not the Genesis 2.24 wife. We've seen back in chapter 2 of Genesis that the definition of marriage by God is one man one woman together for life as one flesh. And so when this one flesh union happens, a promise to the husband, like Abram, is a promise to the wife as well. So you, you can't take a second wife and expect the promise of the one flesh to go to this second wife. And so her son will be Ishmael, but he is not the son of promise because she is not the 224 wife. Chapter 17, jumping ahead, is another very important chapter for the covenant. In verse 6, the Lord says this to Abram. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now, this is the first time that we have this aspect of royal rulership coming from the line of Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations as an everlasting covenant. Don't miss that. Covenant is everlasting. It is irrevocable. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so both the covenant is everlasting and the, the land, the ownership of the land by Abraham and his descendants is everlasting. And we call this the Abrahamic Covenant. If you can jump to the next slide, please. And while the, the details of the covenant are expanded upon in chapters 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22, there are three simple things at a high level that the Abrahamic Covenant promises. Land, seed, and blessing. And so if there's nothing else that you remember in the sermon, just remember the Abrahamic Covenant promises land, seed, and blessing. And 
this covenant will really be the foundation of God's covenant program. Because there will be three more covenants that come in the Old Testament that amplify these three promises. So the land promise will be amplified by a land promise at the end of Deuteronomy. The seed promise will be amplified by the Davidic covenant when we reach the time of King David. And the blessing promise will be amplified by Jeremiah's new covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant here is really foundational in the whole story. And so if we think back to our, our puzzle pieces, Genesis 3.15 is one corner. The Abrahamic covenant is another. It is really essential to the entire plot of the scripture. Now, if we actually jump back two slides to the map, Israel has never had possession of all this land. And so, as Christians, we are left wondering, what has become of the Abrahamic covenant? And there's great disagreement among Christians over this very issue. Some will argue that this covenant was fulfilled in Old Testament history, that during the reigns of King David and his son Solomon, that was fulfilled, but then they went downhill from there. But I think, well, they kind of forgot the part about it being an everlasting possession, right? Others would say that the covenant was canceled due to Israel's disobedience when they went apostate and worshiped other gods for so many generations that God just stepped back and said, enough, I'm not gonna keep my promise anymore. Others would say that the promise is fulfilled in the church in a spiritual sense. And yet I think all of these have weaknesses in them. And I think the best way to look at the Abrahamic covenant is to say that it will be fulfilled, literally, but in the future. So it hasn't been fulfilled yet, but God will keep his promise and he will fulfill it in the future. And so after the, the covenant, the rest of Genesis, we are really looking at tracing the seed promise. Now, Abraham will have a son with his wife, who's renamed Sarah, and his name is Isaac. And if you fast forward to Genesis 26, Genesis 26, verse 2, God will say this to Isaac, the son of Abraham. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands. Okay, we, we said land, seed, and blessing. There's the land. And I will establish my oath that I swore to Abram, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Okay, there's the seed. We've seen land, seed, what's next? And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So land, seed, blessing. Has passed now from Abraham down to his son, Isaac. Now Isaac will have a son named Jacob. And so if you jump ahead to chapter 28, verses 13 and 14, we read this. Uh, this is the Lord appearing to Jacob in a dream. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. There's a land. What's coming next? You can probably guess. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. 
is the seed. What's coming next? <laughs> and in you, all, uh, in, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, land, seed, and blessing. Passed down Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Now Jacob, we come to Jacob, and he will have four wives and 12 sons. And so we're wondering, which of the sons will be the carrier of the promise? Now if we jump ahead a few slides, we have the six sons of Jacob and Leah. There we are, starting with Reuben, the firstborn, down to Zebulun. And so which of these will be the carrier of the promise? Well, in Genesis 34, we read a, a strange account where the family had settled in a town called Shechem. And one of the young men had raped their sister Dina, humiliating her, and Simeon and Levi deceived the Shechemites and slaughtered them. So they killed all the men of the town of Shechem. And apparently for this reason, they were cut off from being carriers of the promise. If we jump to the next slide for that. So those two are, are wiped out. Now, in Genesis 35, we will find that Reuben, the firstborn, he slept with his father's concubine. So, next slide, he is also wiped off from carrying the line of promise. And so now, enter Judah. And the rest of Genesis will be showing us how Judah becomes the carrier of the promise. Now, in chapter 38, it's a very strange chapter. There's a lot of ethically difficult questions that come up from it, but that's really not the point of the story here. Judah will have three sons. His first son would, by default, be the one who's carrying the promise, and that son married a woman named Tamar. And so they, as a one flesh union, become the carrier of the promise. But the son died. God killed him because he was evil. So Tamar is the carrier of the promise. So Judah said to his second son, go be with Tamar and produce offspring for your brother. But he refused, and so he died. And then Judah said, okay, I've lost, I'm just imagining, but I've lost two of my sons. Okay, the third son is not going to be this woman's husband. And so we have uh, this, this woman who's the carrier of the promise, and yet no one to produce offspring. And so she will take things into her own hands, deceive Jacob, pretending to be a prostitute, and in some irony, he will be the father of her child. And in uh, verse 26 of chapter 38, he will say of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And why is that? Because she was acting by faith in the promise. She was acting in a way that would bring about the next generation to hopefully bring forth the promised seed. And so it is through Judah and, and the twins that Tamar gave birth to were Zerah and Perez. And ultimately we'll find out that Perez will carry the line of promise. So then the, the camera, if you will, kind of switches back to Joseph, who has gone down to Egypt. Now there's a lot written about Joseph in his story, but he is not a son of the 224 wife. So he, he never had a chance of being the carrier of the promise. And I think that the reason we have so much about Joseph is to explain how the Israelites came to be living in Egypt. 
And as the famine grew in the land and, and the brothers kind of go back and forth between Canaan and Egypt, what we're seeing is the leadership of Judah develop. He really becomes a leader among his brothers. And this is really coming to the forefront in chapter 44, verse 33. And we've got a slide for this, if we could put that up, where Judah says to Joseph, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy, and let the boy go up with his brothers. And at this point, Joseph, who had not yet revealed himself to his brothers, he was demanding that Benjamin, the youngest brother, stay as his prisoner. And Judah was saying, no, let me stay in his place. And so we have here the redeeming action of Judah. He has become his brother's keeper. Just as Cain had said, am I my brother's keeper? Implying no. Here we have a man who has learned his lesson, and he has become worthy of carrying the seed. And so fast forward to chapter 49, the whole family has moved down from Canaan to Egypt, and Jacob is an old man, and he's about to die. And so he calls all of his sons together, chapter 49, verse 2, and it says this, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now, if you recall last week, in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain had a choice where God had said, if you do good, then rank or preeminence. It's the exact same word in Hebrew. So Reuben was supposed to be the honored son, the one who would carry the promise, the, the preeminent one. But, verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. So that's why he was struck off from carrying the promise. Then verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. Verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so Simeon and Levi, likewise, cut off from carrying the promise. But then, verse 8, Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. This is some good news. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So somebody from the line of Judah will be a king. That all the other brothers and their descendants will bow down to the king of Judah. Verse 10, the, the scepter, uh, which is like the royal staff of a king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So that is really how the promise has come to be carried by Judah. And that's why, circling back now to Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus, that's why Judah is there. Now surely, uh, of the 12 sons, Many other things happened, but we have nothing recorded in scripture about them because they don't pertain to the promise. And this is one reason we know that Moses was not trying to write out of biographical interest or out of historical interest, or we might have more stories from more of these 12 brothers. 
but his interest was in showing us how the promised seed was carried from one generation to the next. And if we can jump to the next slide, please. So what we're basically doing, Genesis does this, and the whole Bible does this, is trace the promised seed, beginning with Adam, to his son Seth, on the line down to Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, and then Judah. And then hundreds of years after Judah will come a man named David, King David. And then a thousand years after David will be born Jesus. And so the whole story of scripture is looking for the Genesis 3.15 promised seed of the woman who will strike the serpent's head. And that's where the story is going. Now we're not there yet, we're still just at the end of Genesis. But we'll get there, we'll get there. So if we jump ahead one slide, the main points that we want to take away from Genesis are that there is an unfulfilled seed promise. So we're still waiting for the promised one who will strike the serpent's head, who will lead humanity back to the garden, and who will restore the image bearers to rule the earth. And what we know by the end of Genesis, Judah is that carrier. And also we have the Abrahamic covenant which promised land, seed, and blessing. And we saw how it was passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to all the 12 sons, uh, whereas the seed promise is only through Judah. And so these are two of our corner pieces in the, the big puzzle of scripture. And what's really of vital importance for, for you and for me in applying especially Old Testament narratives to our lives is we need to understand who we are, and where we are in the story of God. Because we are, we are not living in this promised line. Uh, we're not part of the, the genetic descendants. We're not carriers of the promised seed. But when we get to the New Testament, Paul does something very interesting. If we jump to the next slide. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, it says this, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the Gentiles or all the nations will be blessed in you. That's what we've just read in Genesis. That's the promise to Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And so even if you and I are not genetic descendants, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we can be spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith, by faith in the promised seed of Abraham. And so our major point of application is that God promised to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles. And if you want that blessing, which I guarantee you do, it's wonderful, if you want that, the only way to get it is through hope in the seed of Abraham who, as the story progresses, we will come to learn is Jesus Christ. And so if you have never placed your faith, your, your hope, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would urge you to consider doing that. If you have questions about that or maybe you're not sure, I would be happy to talk with you. So please feel free to come find me after the service and it would be my joy to, to speak with you about that. Well, let me pray and we'll invite Lauren back up.
Oh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you that we can trust your promises. In the time that we are awaiting the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham, give us patience and help us to be a blessing to those around us. Give us the faith that Abraham had. May we be defined by our faith. May we hope in the promised seed in Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you do and all that you are continuing to do in our lives. We thank you for this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.